1: Jürgen Klopp is not a man of few words, or one who shies away from sharing opinions. He's a Champions League winner, a footballing philosopher, and most definitely a hugger. But how did he become one of the greatest managers in the world? And how did he turn Liverpool into one of the great footballing sides? In the new issue of 4.4.2, we have an in-depth interview with Klopp by comedian John Bishop, where we get to discover what the German really thinks about, well, basically everything. The interview is an extract from a new book, A Game of Two Halves, where famous names from across the arts, media and politics interview their footballing heroes to raise money for the UN's refugee programme. I'm Conor Pope, and in this episode, I speak to the person who put the book together, Liverpool fan Amy Raphael, and my colleague Ryan Herman about what we can learn from this incredible interview with the Reds' boss. I also speak to This Is Anfield editor, Matt Ladson, about Klopp's early days at Liverpool and what he did to make the team what they are now. This is the 442 Podcast. Tell us a bit about the book. Who's in it, to start us?
2: Do you want everyone who's in it? Uh, All the pairings or the the, uh, the, the highlights? Yeah, the highlights. Like Jürgen Klopp and Jürgen Klopp. Um, (laughs) Jürgen Klopp is paired with John Bishop, Pep Guardiola and Johnny Marr, Lucy Bronze and Claire Balding. Frank Lampard, Omid Jalili, Rio Ferdinand and Rachel Riley, talking about the good old days of Man United. Uh, <laughs> Ian Wright and Wretch 3-2, Hector Bellerin and Ramesh Ranganathan, Steve and Gerard and David Morrissey, Gary Lineker and Fard Salah, who is a former Syrian goalkeeper who's been resettled in the UK. Eric Dyer and David Lammy, John McGlynn, the Wraith Brothers manager and Valwood McDermid, and Vivian Miedemar and me, because <laughs> no one else could fit around her schedule, so I ended up doing it. So <laughs> she's my hero. Yeah, right. I,
1: I thought she was completely robbed in the uh, FIFA Best oh, 11 totally robbed. Um, this
2: week. She's such an exciting player, and she's a, she's a superstar in Holland. Wherever she goes yeah, in yeah. Holland, she's
1: mobbed. No, She's fantastic in the World Cup this year. But how did you get all of these names together?
2: Oh, it was easy. No, it wasn't easy. <laughs> it was an absolute nightmare. I, I basically had the idea for the book after the Brexit referendum kind of astonished us all. Well, I, I went to David Morrissey in the first instance, mm. who I've interviewed a, a lot, and he's a fellow Liverpool fan. And I just said, look, will you, I've got this idea. Will you help me with it? And he said, yes, yeah, sure. By, by help, I meant, will you be there for me to lean on? Will you introduce me to anyone you know who's a football fan like John Bishop? so that I can kind of circumnavigate the the managers in the first instance just to, you know, sound people out. And he said yes. And then we had to have a sample chapter to sell it to a publisher. So I got in touch with Stephen Gerrard's agent and had a very, very, very long phone conversation <laughs> with her about what the book was and what we'd want from him. And she totally got it, and she was brilliant. And, and we went to BT Sport, and I did... I did what I uh, kind of at the beginning of the book. I'd, I did this slightly probably over zealous thing where I read or reread in, in Stevie G's case both his autobiographies, mm. did all the questions like pages and pages of questions for David Morris, which he then ignored. <laughs> <laughs> so I was sitting there and I was sitting there in BT Sport, you know, slightly thinking, "Oh my God, it's Stevie G," yeah. you know, and 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 then and, and and David just went off on his own path. And I just thought, okay, lesson learned. You really can't kind of dictate. If you're going to say to somebody, do you want to interview your hero? Yeah. You then, you know... But I think the problem is that at the same time, every agent or manager that I spoke to wanted to pre-approve questions. Mm. So I had to do all that research. So I ended up reading every book, any, any book that's written on anyone in, in in my book, Yeah. I had to read God. just so that I could... I could then kind of play that game, I suppose.
1: And so, um, so what, what made you want to make the book? Because it's raising funds for a refugee charity. So, what, what, what kind of, what was the, the big catalyst behind oh, it?
2: Brexit. I was very, very upset by, by the vote and the implications of what that vote would mean because to me, it felt, a lot of it felt like closing borders. It felt like a, a vote to close borders. And then I was reading an article online, and basically there were a, a bunch of kids jumping into a, a, a bomb crater that had filled with rainwater. Yeah. And I was, I was still in Italy at the time, sitting by a pool thinking, through the luck of geography, I'm sitting here by this pool in this beautiful country, free to do what I want, free to travel. And these kids are jumping into a bomb crater. And this was in Syria, and was it? Yeah, this was Yeah, this is mm. in Syria, sorry. And then I saw another picture of two lads kicking a football around, I think in, in Homs. And completely deserted, bombed out derelict buildings and yeah. they're just playing football. And it made me think about the univer- football being a universal language and all those kind of cliches. And then I just thought, well, what can I do? Because, you know, we can all give a little bit of money to charity, but what can I do to keep the conversation going? Yeah. I was really struck by the idea of these lads kicking a ball around. And then I remembered that there's so much footage of refugee camps with kids wearing old Man United shirts and old Arsenal shirts and kicking balls around or kicking whatever they can make balls from, you know, carry yeah. bag, carrier bag stuffed with newspaper or whatever. And then, and then I just thought, wouldn't it be amazing if I got famous football fans to interview their heroes to ma- raise money for, for refugees? And David Morrissey is a goodwill ambassador for UNHCR. And he said, look, if you're going to do this book to raise money for refugees, then you've got to see their work on the ground. You've got to know what you're talking about. So we went to Lebanon and uh, went to Beirut and went to Becca Valley, went to a refugee camp. And it was a real shock. Yeah. I mean, a real, real shock, as you would imagine.
1: I think it's really interesting what you say and what you write about the idea of football being a kind of unifying force. And c- certainly when, when you see clips so often of refugee camps or war-torn areas on the news, it's actually really common to see a replica shirt of a European club uh, kind of in the background, which is a kind of really interesting thing. This is something that actually people all across the world do have a really strong emotional connection to, isn't it? I mean, Ryan, what are your kind of thoughts on, on the idea of football as this this unifier?
3: Well, as far as the idea of Brexit and that being a catalyst for the book, um, I think certainly in this country at least, uh, it's probably football, football or sport is certainly probably the only thing that really unifies us. Anymore, If you look at big TV events over the past even 25 years, it's either a royal wedding or a royal funeral, or it's a sporting event. And on a mass scale, it's the only thing that cuts through politics, religion, uh, race. Mm. uh, Look at last summer, look at the World Cup, every pub was packed, 25 million people watching the game, irrespective of what our differences were. Football brought us together, so yeah, it's that one unifying thing that we've got. Did you sit in on all of the interviews? How did I
2: did? I did. I I am a complete control freak. No, I <laughs> I because I set everything up myself. It I I was the point of contact, and quite often these people hadn't met the the, the couplings. Well, you know, I was putting. I sent them yeah, yeah. on a blind date, basically. Sometimes, like in the Pep Guardiola uh, Johnny Marr interview, Johnny Marr said. After half an hour, we had an hour with every. We got an hour with everybody, and sometimes it went on longer. But Johnny just said, "After half an hour, right, I'm going now." He just kind of (laughs) he just kind of lost his nerve completely, and we're like, "No, Johnny, Johnny, no!" But um, Johnny Moore got nervous. Yeah, I mean it's incredible. Yeah, I mean it really. It was just honestly. Sometimes it was it was so bizarre watching. You know, I grew up with the Smiths on my on on on, on my walls. I mean, I'm, yeah. let's say nothing about Morrissey, but you know, <laughs> I, was, I was like, why "Oh he, my God!" Why is he not in the book? <laughs> I were no comment. I was like, "Oh my God, Johnny Marr," and Johnny Marr was like, "Oh my God, Pep." So yeah, it was yeah. this kind of, and then Pep was teasing me about going to see Klopp the next day. So it all became this kind of chain of ludicrousness. But, but I mean, I, I, again, you asked about um, doing research. I mean, I did. I did do questions for absolutely. Everybody, I did like two or three pages of questions for everybody. And I and sometimes they came up. So, you yeah. know, if, if in one of those interviews, maybe four or five of my questions are in, in that chapter, it, you know, it felt worth it. Mm. And also I felt like I needed, like when Johnny lost his nerve briefly, I felt like I needed to know, I needed to have those kind of questions ready to ask yeah. to kind of get it, get it going again.
3: Um, I wanted to ask about the Eric Dyer, David Lammy interview. Eric Dyer turns it on his head and makes actually starts interviewing yeah. David Lammy. Yeah. You, you weren't expecting that at all.
2: No, because because I really wanted it to be my my, my idea was was you know when you do a really good interview. You, you kind of hope that the re- or when I do a really good interview, or especially when you used to get a lot of access back back in the day, um, I used to think, oh, you know, it'd be amazing if if it would read like you'd gone down the pub with this person, not that you were their mate, but that the the, the kind of conversation flowed in in that way, and I wanted it to be kind of, you know, back to and forth between between the people, and of course, that's not always going to work. Like Stephen Gerrard is quite a shy guy, mm. unbelievably. So so when David Morrissey kept on saying, yeah, but you know, when you're in L.A., Hollywood, I'm, you know, I'm an actor. I'm basically saying, ask me anything about my career. And, <laughs> and, and Gerald just wasn't getting it at all. <laughs> in the nicest possible way. But, you know, because he was, you know, he, like I say, he's shy. So, yeah. and I just thought, oh, who cares? Because what he's saying is so interesting. It doesn't really matter. But with, with um, Eric Dyer and David Lammy, it went on, the whole interview just went on and on and on. Because basically, we, we managed to do it in... Um, in Parliament, which actually it was worth oh, cool. the wait. because, yeah, yeah. But trying to get Eric Dyer through security. I don't know, everybody who works in Parliament seems to be a Tottenham fan. It just took <laughs> forever to get him through because it was like, oh, Eric Dyer, mate, mate. <laughs> um, and it was just before the... Um, it was like a week before the Champions League final. So I wasn't, I wasn't loving it, I have to say. But no, it was... And, and I just thought, again, Eric's a really shy guy. And I'd done questions for both of them, and I mean, I felt a bit ludicrous giving David Lammy questions, but I'd done questions for both of them, and I had no idea. I just thought David Lammy would dominate because his, his, you know, yeah, that's yeah. his personality. Yeah, yeah. Um, not to be domineering, but he's, he's you know, abusive, he's very garrulous. Yeah, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and then Eric Dyer just starts asking about the minimum wage, and, yeah. and then it ends up he's doing a Open University course and, yeah, yeah. and studying the riots and. And, and without knowing... I mean, I can pretend I'd researched it really well. I hadn't. I just thought that Eric Dyer would be a good match because he'd, gr- he'd grown up in Portugal and he had a kind of European perspective mm. and he's smart. So I thought they would be a good match. I did not know yeah, that yeah. they would get on like that. Yeah. I was sitting there going, what? I, th- I, th- I
1: think Dyer is part of this generation of, of footballers who are actually, in, term- in terms of everything else, very different people but have become almost like social commentators. Megan Rapinoe gave uh, an incredible speech, I thought, at the FIFA Awards this week. Raheem Sterling is obviously, like, frankly, one of the most eloquent social commentators that we have in this country at the moment, I think. And I know that we've, we've got them coming up in a, in a future issue of the magazine. Um what do you make of this? And, and is this a kind of like new trend in football, or am I just am I a bit young and I don't recognise that Eric Cantona well, was doing this 20 years ago? I
3: was thinking about this. We've, there's a, a thing coming up soon where Kick It Out's 20, 25th anniversary, and I've got to play the story in the country about Laurie Cunningham's life, and it's called "Guessing the Third Degree." And within his story, his house was it was a petrol bomb put for his his door once. He had re- death threats regularly sent to his house. And you didn't know about this stuff and there wasn't any, any way to really articulate it. Mm. Um, we didn't really expect footballers to talk about this stuff as well. Social media has changed football in so many different ways and it means that if you want to get your message out, you can get it out to millions of people instantly. People can have a go at Sterling, but Sterling now has an opportunity to have a go back. And also the clubs don't have to, can't manage that. Yeah. They can't tell you what you can and can't put on social media anymore. But I think if, if the way that things have changed in terms of, What's happening in football grounds? Occasionally, in terms of incidents of racism as well,
2: players probably feel the need to have to speak out about it. I think social media has changed everything. It absolutely has changed everything for for good and for bad. Um, but I, I I think I also think there has been a, I, I do think there has been a shift. I think that there's common goal of doing a great thing, asking footballers and managers to sign up and give one percent of their earnings. I think that's amazing. I don't know that I don't know that you know. In the past, footballers and managers haven't had social consciences. I just don't think it was part of a dialogue. And I think yeah. also we're in such a shitty political time that to sit back... I mean, to, honestly, to sit back and not say anything would, would, would just be... It'd almost be a crime, I mm. think, for... That sounds quite extreme, <laughs> but, I think, but I do. I, th- I think for... I don't see how a, a really bright young guy like Raheem Sterling could just sit there and say... I don't care. Yeah. It, it yeah. just almost, it, it almost kind of couldn't happen. Well,
3: there was a kind of a barrier between the fan and the player that didn't. That now has been broken down with through social media. It never used to exist. The only access you had to a player or um, what you found out about them was through match or shoot interviewing them and asking what record they bought that week or what their <laughs> favourite car was or what their, their favourite actor was on top of the pop stuff like that. You, they're pretty pretty anodyne stuff. There wasn't. We didn't know anything more about those players. So, I mean, it's absolutely right. We, it's not as if players never had a social conscience, but we never asked them to have one.
1: Finally, before we move on, I can ask you back to that meeting that you had with Pep Guardiola. And you write in the book that just before you left, you noticed that there was a folder on the table with a, with a sign on it marked Liverpool. As a Liverpool fan, how, how did you not just take it? Well,
2: well, it, was, it was, well, it was on the corner, like right. It's almost like he put it, put it there on purpose. It was right <laughs> in front of me. But all, the, all, all his notes were, were in Spanish. Oh, right, So, okay. I, just so you I, did could, I just thought, I just thought, <laughs> no, 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 there were, there were, there oh, right, were, there right, were kind of notes the, of the whiteboard and, and... Okay. So But, but also, I mean, I, I, I just thought, is this a test? This just really <laughs> feels like a test. Um, and in fact, I really, I really didn't want I mean, obviously, he's a fantastic manager, but you can't help help but like him. Yeah. I mean, he's so utterly charming. And he was so funny when he knew that when he found out I was a Liverpool fan and I was seeing Klopp the next day, he just wouldn't let it rest. (laughs) He just kept on, you know, saying, oh, I'm just the starter and he's the main course and give him a hug from me. And, you know, and he felt I mean, I kind of knew as well in that moment that they'd probably win the league because he felt. I mean, he just, he was just so relaxed. It just felt like he kind of had it nailed, whereas Mm. the next day Klopp was far.
1: More stressed about it. More
2: stressed about it, yeah, for sure.
4: Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you.
0: Before we talk about the Klopp-Bishop
1: interview, I chatted to This Is Anfield editor Matt Ladson about Klopp's early days at Liverpool to give us a bit of context for the success that followed. October 2015, Brendan Rodgers has just been sacked as Liverpool manager a year after taking Liverpool to second place and obviously so close to the title. What was was the mood among Liverpool fans around that time?
5: The mood was pretty low, uh, to say the least. I mean, you say that it was just over a year after finishing second, but it was only a couple of months after getting that absolute hammer in at Stoke on the final day of the season. Um, The new season, many people didn't expect Rodgers to survive the summer, but he did somehow. And I think that was more due to a replacement not actually being available at the time. And into that new season, I think Liverpool had played eight games, they were 10th in the league. They had a minus goal difference at the time. They'd been... Disappointing results, so, you know, the drawn with Carlisle, Norwich, FC Sion, you know, a lot of teams that a club of Liverpool's stature should have been easily uh, enjoying wins against. And really, it just proved that that second place finish was the anomaly um, for Liverpool at the time. And that was what was disappointing, that we didn't kick on from that second place finish and if anything, we'd gone backwards extremely quickly. And the mood was was very low there was a lot of criticism of the owners whether they would actually there was a little bit of skepticism as to whether they would bring in the right appointment and thankfully of course they did big jürgen
1: is it true that liverpool used a kind of money ball style mathematical model to decide on on hiring Jur- jürgen klopp
5: i don't know if they particularly used a money ball you know everybody <laughs> kind of got hung up on that phrase because they don't used it with success in in america with the baseball yeah um, but obviously, moneyball. the whole whole strategy of it has its foundings in a manager who can get the most out of his players, and that's something that Jurgen Klopp already had a proven success in doing. You know, I think that at the time when he came into Liverpool, it was actually the FSN, the Dortmund CEO, that had spoke so highly of Jurgen. Obviously, he was on a sabbatical kind of at the time. You know, and he'd said that every player in Klopp's hands, he makes better. Makes them better, and that's what obviously FSG were very excited about. And that Klopp, when he first came into the club, said that this isn't a terrible squad; we just need to get players playing better. And that was something that he did. Um, You know, it's difficult to forget now, but Dejan Lovren, for one example, he got him playing better, better than he had at any other time. Yeah. You know, he rejuvenated Lana to end him as a centre midfielder rather than an attacking midfielder. He moved Firmino to centre-forward. He got Milner to left-back. He got Henderson into a new role as a holding midfielder. He got Emre Chan player better than ever. You know, so he proved that quite early on. that He was a manager that got the best from his players and therefore was coaching them rather than just signing players that might have been the case if they had brought in a different manager at the
1: time. Was there excitement among the fan base? I mean, obviously Klopp had been an exciting manager in Europe for a couple of years, but he'd just come off a season at Borussia Dortmund where they'd finished seventh in the league after having spent quite a a fair chunk of the season in the relegation zone. So was there more kind of scepticism around it? No,
5: there was no scepticism at all. Really? (laughs) There was, as we just said with Liverpool and the anomaly was that they'd finished second in them previous years
1: yeah.
5: so finishing seventh for Dortmund in that final season Liverpool supporters recognised that that was the anomaly for Klopp and there was a lot of excitement around his arrival, it was a world-renowned manager, a manager that could attract high-quality players, who could get the best from players and who would rejuvenate the whole club and bring the supporters back together again because it was a fractured time in the preceding years at Liverpool Um, and most importantly he was a manager that understood not just what it meant to be playing for Liverpool Football Club but also the city, the community, the fan base and what Liverpool historically meant.
1: And so did his arrival see much of a culture change at Liverpool and you know how quickly did he start to kind of make his own stamp at the club?
5: Yeah, I mean, massively. The, the immediate thing is that he demanded more. He demanded more from the fans. He demanded more from the players. He demanded more from the owners. You know, he, he wanted to make Liverpool back into being a top club within England primarily and then within Europe. And, you know, when Klopp, his arrival, his first press conference, hundreds of media um, from around Europe, the interest was huge. And... The press conference itself had to take place in Liverpool's, what was then the centenary stand because the main stand was being rebuilt at the time. So the sort of pictures of Klopp being presented to the media was him on the Anfield pitch with the main stand with the cranes kind of above it. And I guess that was symbolic of the process that needed to be done, that we needed to work and rebuild the club and that was what Jürgen was there for.
1: And did he bring a big team in with him immediately? How much kind of free reign was he given over the, the day-to-day running of the club?
5: Yeah, I mean I think that Jurgens obviously a manager that had a proven track record and that could come in and he changed a lot of things about the club. Um, he changed the training. Um, they started to start training at different times of the day to impact the uh, relate more to the time of the next match. So if it was an evening game they would train more in the evening. Simple things like that. Um, he started to bring in his own coaching staff, and especially after his first season, he did more of that. Um, brought in Mona Nemo, a nutritionist, who had previously worked at Bayern Munich. He brought in Andreas um fitness coach again from Bayern Munich. You know, and He was um, influential in making sure that Liverpool had the best support team around him. Jürgen doesn't have an ego. He, he admits that he wants to have the best infrastructure for himself, um, and that includes getting the best people around him to support him.
1: And so, the putting aside the Champions League win for one second, if if it's possible for you to be able to do that, what what do you think has been his greatest success as Liverpool manager?
5: I mean, arguably his, his best success has been getting the supporters on the side. You know, we obviously we had the famous quote in one of his first interviews talking about turning the fans from doubters to believers. And the fans were doubters and they were sceptical at the beginning because. That's how we'd been in the last five, six, seven, eight years. As a football club, we weren't reliable. The players weren't reliable. The results weren't reliable. We'd gone from sixth to eighth to second again, you know. and, and now when you watch Liverpool, there's there's no doubt. We feel as though we are gonna get a way to win. If there hasn't been a goal after twenty minutes, it's quite confident. There's no um there's no, there's less nervous anxiety around the stadium than there certainly was three, four years ago when Jurgen had first come in. And as we approach sort of the four-year history of Klopp coming in, we now feel as we've got a squad that's built in his DNA um, and who are reliable and will deliver to success on the pitch. You know, we're now a squad and a team of players who are strong mentally, who aren't weak, um, unlike some of the predecessors within the squad. Um, and who want to win trophies and actually have the capability, both mentally and technically, on the pitch.
1: You talk about players being kind of in Klopp's DNA. There, I think by that you mean his kind of like his ideology, his philosophy as a manager. How much do you think that what is currently going on at Liverpool is a Jurgen Klopp project, and how much of it could outlast him whenever he he does move on?
5: Well, again, with Jurgen, he has openly said that things that get done at the football club now need to outlive him, such as the training ground. You know, he was very instrumental in encouraging Fenway Sports Group to move ahead with merging the academy and the first-team training grounds into one base, which should be completed next year. But he knows that that is something that will be there long after Jurgen Klopp's here, but obviously it serves a purpose and helps him now, and he can see the benefit of that. So FSG had always wanted to do that, but Klopp coming in and when he signed the new contract, that was part of the agreement of the new contract that 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 would go ahead. He doesn't have the ego to think that that's just for his sake, it's for the benefit of Liverpool Football Club as a whole. Um, As is many of the other players, Trent Alexander-Arnold will hopefully be at Liverpool well after Jurgen Klopp has left as manager. He's a player that Klopp has brought in, who's developed and we could even see, you know, Alexander Arnold being uh, captain and changing his role again under Liverpool, under Klopp or after a, uh, after Klopp moves on.
1: Um, so you've written for four four two before that you don't think that the Liverpool owners get enough credit for the, for the amount of success that the team's had over the past few years. And um, why why do you think that is? And how how does Klopp fit into their their kind of their own ideology? I know you talked earlier about about how he makes players better through the coaching, but is there something broader that actually Klopp and the owners kind of share a world view on?
5: Klopp is a manager who who is very happy to work with a sporting director. So when FSG originally came into the club, that was the model and structure of the club that they wanted to put in place. Mm. It didn't happen when Brendan Rodgers took sole charge because he insisted on having more of a hands-on approach to transfers. So Klopp coming in and then... A year or so after his appointment, Liverpool officially appointed Michael Edwards, who was a senior scout as a sporting director. And Klopp has openly said how well the two work together and how that helps him. And there's many evidence of Klopp taking the advice of Michael Edwards and his scouting department. They were the team that pushed for the signing of Mohamed Salah, for instance. Mm-hmm. Klopp trusted that uh, judgment and you know that benefits Liverpool Football Club as a whole. And to speak about the owners... Um, and perhaps not getting as much credit as I and some others feel that they should have. But at the end of the day, we're all here to see results and to see silverware, and there's been a severe lack of that. Now, it's not the owner's fault that Liverpool lost a penalty shootout within the first six months of Jurgen Klopp's Mm -hmm. reign. They didn't miss the penalties against Man City that day. They weren't on the pitch and playing poorly against Sevilla in the Europa League final that year. Similarly, they weren't the one... In the FA Cup semi-final under Brendan Rodgers, you know they actually had brought Liverpool back from what many people don't quite either understand or believe. But they were close to administration. There was huge issues when Fenway Sports Group came into the club. They have restructured the club off the field. They've provided a solution to the problem with Anfield Stadium capacity, improving or given a new training ground, when we look back after 10 years, they will have ticked every box that you would want from an owner. Now, they're not the ones who ultimately decide whether trophies are brought into the club because they're not the ones actually playing on the pitch. But had things gone slightly differently under Brendan Rodgers in 2013-14, they could have delivered the Premier League title already. Mm. They were one slip away from that happening. And similarly, if... Jürgen Klopp, in his first season, could have had two trophies with just a couple of very different instances on the field. Thankfully, now they have the Champions League success um, to sort of give them stock in terms of the actual silverware. If they provide, and Jürgen provides, the elusive title, um, then what more could they do?
1: Now, in this interview, Jürgen Klopp talks about Steven Gerrard, and he says that Eventually, he thinks that Steven Gerrard would be the right person to replace him as manager. Obviously, no-one is quite expecting a managerial change anytime soon. But, of course, Gerrard is always going to be popular with Liverpool fans, but is this something that you can see happening? Is it something that fans are maybe excited about?
5: Nobody's getting too excited about it now. <laughs> I mean, obviously, we'd all love to see it happen if it was the right appointment and if... It was um, one that was going to benefit Liverpool Football Club. Who wouldn't want to see Gerard finally actually win a league title with Liverpool? Mm. Admittedly, as a manager, you know that's something that he deserves as a as a player and as a person, as a manager, whatever it may be. But I think that Jurgen is just giving an answer there to a quite a leading question, um, and in a in a sort of positive light. You know, we all love Stevie Gerard. Jurgen obviously gets along with him. He can see the qualities that he has, and you know. Gerard has already started to speak correctly as a manager Um, there can be no doubting that he cares about the club and that he's got the right attitudes whether it would actually happen who knows we've seen recently Pepin Linders speaking in press conference and he's an assistant manager at the moment but like, he is somebody who might be a better fit in the short term depending on whenever this may happen but you know we're talking about hypotheticals here and Yeah, we'd all love to see Stevie Gerrard finally lift that league title as Liverpool manager. But at the end of the day, it's all about the right appointment and whoever that may be at the time and the place. And hopefully it's not any time soon.
1: I preferred Klopp's answer. It was uh, a lot better for advertising the magazine. But Matt Ladson, thank you very much. No problem. Jürgen Klopp doesn't do many long-form interviews like this. Um, I mean, in, in this one, he talks about racism religion the yugoslav wars of the 1990s brexit german history and theories of leadership it's pretty wide-ranging stuff what do we learn about jürgen klopp the man from this interview
2: in fact when we were waiting outside his office to to, for the interview um was me and john bishop the interview got john and i had had traveled up to liverpool previously Mm. and the interview was cancelled um at the very last minute so so all credit to John Bishop for going all the way up again. Does John to, Bishop to not live in Liverpool? No, he lives... I, I find no, that he lives, shocking. He lives down <laughs> south. Um, so, only recently, but... And he's got he's got family up there still. Yeah, but, but anyway, he, he... But we were waiting outside, and, and one of the press guys said, it's like getting an audience with the Pope. I don't know how you pulled it off. <laughs> and I basically... I, I, I mean, I, I think I partly pulled it off because I've got a, a, an old friend, David Maddock, who works for The Mirror... Who introduced me to Matt McCann at, at Liverpool in the first place, who's the head of press at Liverpool in the first place. And then I just didn't let it go. Mm. I I just wrote a really long email saying that he probably didn't even read, saying, you know, my granddad used to operate on Liverpool players, which is true, he operated on Souness and came back with all these autographs when I was a kid <laughs> in the seventies. And, you know, I, I kind of was just saying this is my association with the club and, you know, this is why I love Klopp and so on so I, I have no idea if he read it or not, but I just mm. I just kept I just kept on hassling and hassling and hassling and hassling until until it happened, and then I also it was also you know the pair, the, the pairings are so important because it, can you imagine if it was a bad blind date I mean it just would have been awful but and I think in fact when we went in the room with 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 Klopp John Bishop didn't even manage to talk really for. For the first kind of twenty, <laughs> 20 minutes, because is, I mean, I think because Scott was just yeah. on his yeah. just on a bloody on his high horse about politics, and I was sitting <laughs> there going yes, and 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 John Bishop was sitting there going but I've got all these questions, <laughs> so, well, so I found that with
3: somebody else who interviewed him, it was for French TV, and he was given fifteen minutes and one question took up twelve minutes, yeah, which is great in one sense, but it means I've got a whole list of questions. And I'm never going to get well, around very, to asking. It's a
2: very clever way of of doing it because, of course, you're controlling the situation yeah. completely. Although yeah, I course. don't, see, I didn't feel like he was doing that in, in this instance. Um, and he knew he knew what the book was for. He was a bit ingenuous in the, disingenuous in the book when he says, "Oh, you know, I knew it was for charity, and I knew it was you." He knows exactly. He knew exactly what <laughs> it was for. But
1: but I think. Someone as obsessive as Jurgen Klopp, he's never going to come. Of course, he's never going to just be like, "Oh yeah, hi."
2: I do come in. No, I mean, I was surprised at the generosity of what he was willing to say because, as you clearly, and I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I do get the idea that had I turned up, having read every book I could possibly find, translated, obviously not not in German, but every book I could find that, that was translated on Klopp, every chapter, every everything, I still don't think I'd have got what John Bishop got because. I think there was a feeling, and again, this runs throughout the book, that journalists are there to catch out Mm. their subjects. And clearly, John Bishop wasn't trying to do that. So there was a kind of... I don't know that there was a matiness, but there was a kind of mutual respect that there might not be between between a footballer or a manager and a a journalist. There would be a kind of suspicion there that just evaporated. Um, And although I was kind of butting in with some questions... I was very much you know, in the background, which was really hard, actually, because of course my journalistic instinct is to say, "No, I want to ask this. I want to know this." So,
1: because most of the people in here are not cha- trained as journalists, but did some of them have kind of surprisingly good journalistic in- instincts, or was it more about the kind of the conversation? I was going to say,
2: John Bishop's now quite an experienced interview, yeah. isn't he? So yes, yeah. yeah. So, which is why I thought. I mean, we did, we did, we did think of who would be. I mean, I thought obsessively about who would be the best match for 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 Klopp, and we thought of Daniel Craig. Mm. And we thought of millions of people. We just thought of loads of people, Loyal Carner, you know, um, and I'd have loved it to have been any any of those yeah. Damien Lewis, any of those people would have been brilliant. But I really thought that John Bishop, A, I think he's got a brilliant interviewing style. He's so relaxed. Honestly, I'm just thinking I've been doing this for so long, and he just turns up and it's all in his head, and he knew exactly what he wanted to ask him. But you know, looked as though he'd just kind of wandered in, which obviously <laughs> made Klopp feel yeah really relaxed. What, what do you?
1: You're both Liverpool fans. What do you think it is about Klopp and the Liverpool fan base that has led to this emotional connection? I mean, obviously winning the Champions League helps, but there's clearly something there already.
3: If you look back through the recent history of managers, and you say even when Julier came in, he'd lived in Liverpool, he understood something about the city. When Benitez came in he'd been an, he'd been in an underdog situation in in Spain trying to f- f- battle against uh, Barcelona and Real Madrid which he came kind of came into that situation with Liverpool they were way behind say Chelsea and Manchester United and Arsenal when Hodgson came in it was just seemed like it was just another job and the way he talked about that season coming up was it was it was playing down expectations you've got to come in and talk things up when you're a Liverpool manager that you're you're going to get them back to where they what he'd like to be, and Klopp was like that from the off. He was, and it comes across in the interview. I saw an opportunity to take this club back to where it, where it previously been. So he kind of got that immediately. And there's been points where people have kind of strangely questioned him. And I always came back to the same thing. Well, if you got rid of Klopp tomorrow, who else are you going to get? There is nobody, literally nobody in the world I can think of who could do that job better, who's
1: better suited for mm. that job. Do you have any kind of like favourite parts of the interview? Certainly, I. I mean, there's so many great bits, but. There was a a line that really stood out to me where he he said that not being informed does not make you free of responsibility, which is such an interesting, I think, comment about definitely about the society we live in, but frankly, also I think has a direct translation to football as well. It's like if you're at a corner and someone nips in behind you, then it doesn't stop being your fault. Like you should know that someone's nipped in behind you. But did any kind of like pearls of wisdom kind of come up for the review?
2: I mean, I I think something, and I, I'm kind of slightly out of my comfort zone with this because I don't know much about management, but I I think what really impressed me is the kind of management mm. like the I, I think they these guys could work in big companies yeah, and yeah. lead big companies and i don't really it's not that's not my world but I think one of the quotes you've made into a pull quote, actually, about, about Klopp, from, from the Klopp interview, where he says, to be a really good leader, you need enough confidence to have strong people around you. I want the best around me, yeah, yeah. which reminded me, I, I co-wrote Steve Coogan's autobiography, and he has always employed people around him who he says are cleverer than him and better than him, which I think is that thing of having enough confidence in yourself to employ brilliant people around you which is what Klopp's tried to do I think uh, at Melwood I mean it's so impressive going to Melwood now and and seeing you know the food the whole kind of nutrition and food setup is is astonishing and kind of all the nutrition's written on blackboards and and so on but very nicely presented but the fact that he cares about every, Klopp cares about every member, from the cleaners through to, through to Mo. You know, I mean, yeah. he, he cares about everybody. And I think, I mean, he even cares, you know, after, after we won the Champions League, he went around hugging everybody for, what, six minutes or yeah, something? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that hugging, I, I mentioned it in, in, in the intro to the, the game of two halves, that hugging thing, it means more than just a hug to mm. me. It's like, it's so important they, now, that kind of... Because it's communicating something really, really vital.
1: There is, there's a great uh, video as well of the first day back at work after the Champions League final, where, yeah, yeah, again, yeah, he, yeah, go, yeah, he goes around yeah. and he hugs literally everyone who works there. It looks like it takes forever. Sorry, Ryan, well, There was one, were, one
3: moment, I think, within the interview, he talks about where he takes all the staff abroad. Yeah. Everyone is made to feel they're part of something yeah. in a way that sometimes a manager comes into a, into a club wouldn't necessarily communicate with every person who works there, but even from people I know who work at Liverpool say that they all feel part of it, and when, when, it, when Liverpool win, everyone wins.
1: No, he's, he's such, such a fascinating character, uh, and it is a really incredible insight into, into his mind. And, and while this book is obviously raising money for a great cause, I think the fact that actually you get all of these people to open up in a way that they wouldn't normally do is, is an incredible achievement in itself... Anyway, Ryan, Amy, thank you very much.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you.
1: Thanks to Amy, Ryan and Matt for coming on today. The new issue of 442 featuring this big Jurgen Klopp interview is on sale now. You can get it in shops or online where you'll have it delivered straight to your door. And if you subscribe to the magazine today, you'll get the first five issues for just £5. Amy Raphael's A Game of Two Hards is available to buy from early October. Now, we spoke a bit about managers and religion today and about the suspicion that journalists are always trying to catch people out. Next week, we're going to be discussing the career of Glenn Hoddle. And those topics might just come up again. Make sure you don't miss that. The music you've heard is by Hal Griff, available on iTunes and Spotify, just like this podcast. Thanks for listening.